We're in part six today, and I entitled uh, today's message, Just Like Dad. And I want to give you the fill in the blank there in the front of you to kind of give you this idea on what I think is really the heart of today's message for you, which is all good news, all exciting stuff. Um, uh, as you know, we're going through the seven letters to the seven different churches in the book of Revelation. And this is, I told you that two out of the seven have primarily good news, where they don't have major areas of correction. This one is the one that doesn't even have a hint of negativity towards it. This is the uh, most positive message out of all of them, and one where God is really trying to uh, bless a church. So you came on a wonderful time to be encouraged. Um, but the fill in the blank in front of you is simply this. We are never more pleasing to God than when we model him. We are never more pleasing to God than when we model him. Now, there are certain things in Christianity or in religion that are just bizarre and we're not used to in any other aspect of our lives. For example, the idea of praise and worship. Um, it's really weird that we actually have to have God tell us how to worship him. Seems really weird that if we did that in life, it would be something like this. All right, you guys, I've come up with a brilliant idea. We're going to have Appreciate Lance Day, okay? And what we're going to do is we're going to talk about all the great things you like about me. And in case you guys are stuck, I have some pointers. I would like to, uh, I would like to tell you some great things about me so that you can then tell me back how great I am. And it just sounds weird. It sounds forced. It sounds um, like you go, well... That's not right. You can't just do that. That sounds arrogant. It sounds like uh, you're, you're shoveling everybody this information to give back to you. So why does God do that? Because ultimately, most of the best stuff that we have to praise him, we've really got from his word, which he wrote. So why is that okay? Well, the whole main reason is because God is so different. You see, we would never know anything about God unless he revealed himself to us. We would never know what pleases him unless he told us. We will never know any more about God than what he gives us. Therefore, the only way to praise him is for him to tell us what to do. The only way, do you understand just praying to God? He has to give you the words to say. He helps you. He empowers you to talk to him. He's doing all the heavy lifting around. Well, the same thing happens here. The place that we are most honoring to the Lord, the place that makes God smile the most is we're in, when we are in step with who he is and what he does. When we do what the Holy Spirit asks us to do, when we act like him. So if you ever want to know, gosh, how should I be? In what way can I make the creator joyful in me? You could say, you know what? I should reflect him as best as I can. That is your greatest gift. That is your greatest act of worship is to be just like him. This letter that is written to the church in a city called Philadelphia is praise after praise after praise of a bunch of believers, a bunch of Christians, they're acting like Christ. So they get huge congratulations and huge honor. Would you turn with me to Revelation chapter 3, verse 7? 
Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. It's the last book in the Bible. That makes it easy. Go all the way to the end. Back up a little bit. It's page 868 in the Bible's handed to you. 868. Revelation chapter 3, verse 7. And the normal way that I do this is just to read through the letter and then pray for the word and then we get started. So let's go ahead and do that. It starts like this. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia... Right. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God. The new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, there are so many of us that are like your little kids clamoring to know, am I doing good, Dad? Is what I'm doing pleasing in your sight? And if it's okay with you, could you tell us? Could you encourage us? Do we get a good and faithful servant before the last day? Or can we get it now? In some way, can you encourage our heart to know that you're excited about what we're doing? When we run after you and chase after you and try to be just like you and use you as the perfect role model. Today, Lord, encourage our hearts. Bless us, Lord, because down here we're just struggling to do the best. In your name we pray. Amen. To the angel of the church, we talked about that for a number of weeks now. If you need to do some study on what that means, you can dive into some past messages. And we begin our time with the next phrase to the church in Philadelphia. Clearly, we're not in Pennsylvania. Yeah. All right. So we're not that American centric. We are actually back in the ancient world. We are now 1900 years ago. What have you? And we are in the Roman province of Asia. What we now know is Turkey. And in Turkey, there's these seven churches in seven different cities, and one of them happens to be named Philadelphia. Now, before we get into the letter, let me remind you of something that is very, very important. We are opening somebody else's mail. Okay? So, context is important. They're going to understand stuff that we don't just automatically get. When you just read that, do you feel encouraged? Eh, mildly. There's a bunch of weird stuff. Everybody's writing names on everything, and it's just kind of unusual. So you're trying to read this, and you're going, well, I feel kind of good. If I got that letter, I don't know if I understand what it means, and, and I really need you to explain a little bit more. Okay. Well, let me, let me remind you this. It's just like every other letter that you would open up. When I was growing up, 
my uh, my father was not at home with me. Um, uh, my parents divorced when I was seven, and so my dad didn't live in my house. But my dad is an encourager. So he would write me notes many, many times. And I'm the kind of guy that I grew up, and I got this a little bit more from uh, another side of my family. Um, I got the pack rat gene. Anybody have the pack rat gene? All right, praise the Lord. Okay. Um, I keep a lot of stuff. Now, most of that has been burned out of me by my wife. My wife is a chronic cleaner outer, okay? So um, everything is kind of cleansed out. But I have my little files that I get a chance to keep. And there's certain things that I hang on to that have emotional value to me. Um, for example, one of those things is when you encourage me as a church and you send me an email and you say, Lance, I really like this or you did a great job teaching or I think your hair is really cool. If you send me a message that is encouraging, I actually take that email and I move it. I click and drag it into a file called the encouragement file. I have all of them. So everything that you've sent me as an encouragement on email, I keep. It's all in one file. Do I go back and look at it? No, I just want to know that it's there. The idea is that there's something valuable that I'm bringing to you. So in the same way I have at home, a lot of you have written me cards and things like that. Well, I've hung on to a lot of those. I can't keep them all because the cards actually get really big when you're trying to put them in a file. So I don't get a chance to keep them all. But right next to that encouragement file at home is a file from letters and cards from my parents. I have kept every letter and card, I think, that I've got from my parents. Um... My dad used to write me letters from work. He was a superintendent at a school district and he would write me encouraging notes. I was, a, as I've shared with you before, a very fearful little kid. So he would write me little encouragements and strengthening letters. He would write them always on yellow uh, legal pad. So I know immediately when I look into my file, if there's a folded up yellow piece of paper, I know who it's from. If you were to take one of those out of my file and begin to read it, some of the stuff wouldn't make sense to you. It's written from a dad to a small child who they talk about the neighborhood. They talk about what's going on in my life. They talk about things that only make sense between me and my dad. So you would actually have to do just as much work to sort that one out as you're sorting out this letter that you're opening up right now. So that's why we go back through and I explain some stuff to you and then suddenly it becomes alive. I have to go do the research, you got to do the research, and then we understand the meaning. All right? Good enough? So let's study the city of Philadelphia. Where did we get this idea of Philadelphia? When we left off last time, it was a cliffhanger, right? No, it wasn't. Okay, as we're going around through the churches, i got to do a better job teasing each weekend. Um, as we were going around, remember when we pulled into the port in Ephesus, way back at the beginning, talking about these seven churches, we've been going in kind of a clockwise fashion around this territory on a postal route. We've hit a whole bunch of the cities. We only have two left. We left off at a city by the name of Sardis. We are now heading 28 to 30 miles southeast. We're going to head down between two valleys on a terrace, a terrace that rises up out of the ground. It's a 650-foot terrace. That was the beginning of where the city began to launch. 
this city called Philadelphia. It's in the heart of the wine country over there in the area, what we now know as Turkey or Asia Minor. It was known as the gateway to the east because it kind of went through these valleys and from there you could continue on. Well, it was founded for one person, uh, for one reason alone. It was founded to be the launching point to evangelize the world in Greek culture. In other words, it was the hub in that region to reach out to the east and spread Hellenization or Greek culture, language, literature, whatever it is, poetry, song, whatever it is. Now, when Alexander the Great, as the Greek swept through, he put into place this concept of if we're going to really win the world, we got to change everything they think. We got to change everything of how they live. We got to get into their media, into their culture, everything. And then we will truly win as the Greek empire. Well, this was one of those hubs that they went out to evangelize the world with Philadelphia. Well, it was the youngest out of all the seven cities that we were going to study. It was founded around, they don't know exactly, but likely around 150 BC. So we are now about, I don't know, 260 years before John wrote this. It got founded and it's called Philadelphia for one primary reason. There were two kings that were brothers in this kingdom area called Pergamum. Atalus and Eumenes. You will remember perhaps the name King Eumenes from when I told you that there was two libraries fighting. Do you remember I told you that whole story? They were fighting with Alexandria and Egypt and they were going, one guy tried to rip off the other guy's librarian. Do you remember all that? It ended up leading to the development of parchment. Okay, that was King Eumenes. Well, his brother founded the location and really started the city going. He loved his brother so much, he named the city, I love my brother. That's what Philadelphia means. It means I love my brother. That's where it all came from, the love for a brother. So Philadelphia is this kind of family concept for between these two brothers, these two guys. Now, it was located in a very crucial area some of it positive some of it negative it was right on the edge of a volcanic plain i want you to picture in your mind that prior many many you know i don't know how many thousands of years before that there was actually active volcano eruptions in this area it would spew ash and lava into the area now that may look gnarly and as a matter of fact right on that plain they called it the burned land because it just looked completely devastated. But what it did was create rich soil, fertile soil, and extremely amazing for growing grapes. It had fertile soil and hot springs. What does that sound like with, with vineyards covering all the rolling lands? What does that sound like? Sounds like Napa, right? Well, it's what's fascinating is I went over to... Um, Italy a little while ago with my brother speaking of brothers we went on a tour through Italy together and when we were over there we stayed for three days in a bed and breakfast which is pretty funny that I was there with my brother I was like hey want me to play the mandolin for you you know it's uh, just anyway seemed kind of comical but we're in a bed and breakfast right in the center of the Chianti region which is the wine region and over there is basically Napa on steroids 
You guys, it is enormous. It looks just like Napa. So when you go over into the Napa area and you got those rolling hills, everything's a vineyard. The only thing that's different is they have castles and we don't. So they kind of win there, okay? That's pretty cool. Castles are cool. So, um, But you're looking at all these rolling hills and vineyards are everywhere. And, and in the same attitude, that's how this was. I want you to kind of picture the area around Philadelphia like Napa. Is It was a beautiful, lush region made them very wealthy and they produce wines and wines were a big deal in that area and at that time so they were very very wealthy as a matter of fact on all their coins they had the emblem or image or picture of the god bacchus um bacchus is the roman name the greek name is dionysius if you've ever heard of that it's the god of wine okay now i don't know maybe you've seen pictures of him he always is lilted back to the left and looks hammered have you guys ever seen that guy? He kind of has this look to him. He's like, what's up? Okay. And so he, it's funny because he was known as the liberator, which is comical because he said, I will free you from all your problems by getting you completely hammered where you're now in a frenzy and don't remember anything. That's what the God was known for. Well, they had a big kind of worship to this guy. He was kind of their main dude. So that was the, the, the positive is that it was rich soil. The negative was it was a seismic region. It was known for earthquakes. So you got positive and negative to it. Do you remember I told you that in AD 17 there was a massive earthquake that knocked down 12 of the Greek cities? Remember I told you about that last week? And the one that got hit the hardest was the church we studied last time, which was Sardis. They got leveled. Well, another church that got leveled, or city, excuse me, that got leveled was Philadelphia. And remember I told you last time that Caesar Tiberius gave Sardis a bunch of money to rebuild? Well, he gave the same thing to Philadelphia to rebuild. The difference between the two is that Philadelphia was still on a fault line. They got all the aftershocks. So literally, people were in constant fear for their lives. Strabo, the ancient historian, called Philadelphia the city full of earthquakes. That's how known it was in the region. People would do business all day long, hang out in the city during the day, and at night leave. There was a big crew that would do that. They'd leave every day out of fear that while they're sleeping, an earthquake would hit and their house would fall down on them. They were constantly going out of the city and into the city and out of the city and into the city. They were constantly in a state of movement and mobility. You go, why don't you just move? Well, too much rich soil, too much money to be made. You don't want to completely abandon the region. So they would hang around it, but they didn't want to live in there because it wasn't safe. So they would go out and in and out and in. Okay, so this is the environment that we are walking into. Well, this letter that is so full of praise is praise about a church that's actually in a very tough place. All these churches are hard to live in for Christians, but this one is hard for two different reasons. One, there was a great amount of Orthodox Jews that were persecuting these new Christians. We'll talk about that more later. The second reason is the reason why it was tough to live in the region, and that was because they had a huge following of the imperial cult there. Remember I told you that the main reason that Christians were persecuted originally was because of emperor worship. They refused to take the pinch of incense every year, throw it in the fire, and say that Caesar is curios, Caesar is Lord. 
They said, I can't do that. I'm sorry. Jesus is Lord. That persecution would follow. As a matter of fact, in recent years after this, they actually built a whole temple to the imperial cult or to worshiping the emperor. So this was still a hotbed of persecution for Christians and a hotbed for persecution from Jews. So Jesus was looking down at them and saying, man, you guys live in a tough area. You're really doing well. You're doing excellent. Finally, the last thing I'll mention about this city is that after this book was written, Philadelphia continued on in a rather fantastic fashion. Um, Only two out of the seven cities exist today. Philadelphia is one of them. And all the other ones are kind of in ruins or they're real small cities, not real vibrant. This is still a vibrant city. As a matter of fact, Philadelphia was one of the last cities in all the region to fall to Islam. As a matter of fact, they didn't fall to Islam and the Turks until the mid 1300s. For hundreds and hundreds of years, they stayed strong. As a matter of fact, they had a huge Christian base. And to this day, in Islam-run Turkey, they are still a, a very, very large Christian group and have a Christian presence in an Islamic nation out of all cities. This has had a really, really rich heritage. This is a really wonderful place. So Jesus is really, really proud of them. All right, that's enough about the city. Let's dive into the letter and see what we can find. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, these are the words of him who is holy and true. A better translation is the holy one and the true one. Why? Because those were Old Testament descriptors for God. I hope you have realized that Jesus over and over and over again in Revelation is saying, hi, I'm God. Have you guys seen that? I mean, it's one after another after another. These are all descriptors of God's name to the Holy One, the true one, Jesus said, who holds the key of David. Now, an ancient key is not like our keys, like the car keys, the little tiny ones. It was big, enormous wooden keys where you slide it in and lift off the lock. It was a much bigger piece of wood. So you got to picture that in your mind. But what is the key of David? Who's David? David who? Well, we know him a little bit better as the David and Goliath guy, or we know him as King David. Yeah, the guy that wrote a lot of the Psalms. Okay, King David was the Jew's favorite king, the big dog of all kings, God gave him a promise, what's called the Davidic covenant, that through his line, through his lineage, through his ancestors that were going to come, be the Messiah. That was a big deal. The Jews went, okay, now we got it. It's starting to get narrowed down. Through that on the throne, it's going to be the Messiah. This is exciting. Well, when you have the key to the kingdom or the key to the palace or the key to a house, you have all authority and blessings of that house. So Jesus said, I'm God. I have the key to all God's kingdom and the messianic blessings. I got that right here in my hand. Him who holds the key of David, what he opens, speaking of keys, no one can shut and what he shuts, no one can open. Now, why would he say it that way? That's a really awkward way to say it. It's kind of silly that you go, hey, I, when I open, no one can shut. When I shut, no one can open. You go, you mean you have a key? It just seems weird. Why would he say it that way? Because it's an exact quotation from the Old Testament. 
he's trying to link everyone back to a story. The story is found in Isaiah chapter 22. And the story is very simple. The story is this. There was a really bad guy leading Israel. His name was Shebna. Shebna was a bad guy and he was really doing a bad job leading the Jewish people. And God said, you know what? You're done now. I'm taking your authority away from you and I'm going to give it to my man, Eliakim. Eliakim, bring him forward, put a new robe on him, put a sash on him, give him the key of David. And what he opens, no one will shut and what he shuts, no one can open. He's my man for this time. And a new guy was brought in. The idea was now we have a good leader. So what are we seeing? Jesus walks in, says, I'm the new guy in town. I've taken over for all these bogus leaders in your territory. I have all the keys and authority. I'm the good guy. I'm in charge. That's all he was trying to say. All right. So these are all allusions to the Old Testament. Okay. We pick it up here. He said, I know your deeds. I know what you're doing. I know your ministry. I know your works. I know them fully. He said, see, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. He's kind of rolling off the metaphor of the door thing. He said, I placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What does he mean? There's five options. You ready? Right? Five options. First one. Missionary activity, right? Paul used this phrase a lot. Please pray for my ministry that I would have an open door to preach the gospel. He uses that a lot. It's a pretty consistent view. However, Paul didn't write this one. Jesus was writing this letter specifically, but still we're all talking about from a similar source. So is it missionary activity saying now, just like your city is an evangelism capital of the world for Greek, I want you to be the evangelism capital of the world for Christianity. I've opened this brand wide door, brand new wide door, so that you can go out and share the gospel. Is that what it means? That's a great, great view. You can hang that one, right? You can take care of that one. Number two, or does he mean before I set you an open door and it's me? Hi, (laughs) Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. He is the only doorway to heaven. So he is the open door. Then he's saying, come to me. I have provided you salvation and you should be happy about that. Is that what it means? That's a pretty good read, but not quite as likely. Number three, does it just mean spiritual usefulness to the kingdom? And we're making more out of it than it needs to be. It's just a flat out reference of going, I've set before you an open door. We're going to do some stuff, kids. This is going to be excellent. I'm there. The Holy Spirit's there. We're going to do all kinds of amazing ministry. Is that what it means? Number four, this was held for a long time. The opportunity for glorious martyrdom. (laughs) Now, we don't look at that as a good thing. Yay! Die for our faith. Yay! Okay. Is that what he means? I've set before you an open door to be whisked into my kingdom by being killed for your faith. And everybody thought that was a good idea. That was an, an old school view on what this meant. I'm not buying it. Okay. Last one. This is the one that I think most fits the context. Okay. Reaction to the synagogue. You go, what? Why is that important? You will find here in a moment 
that Jesus is going to blast the local synagogue for one particular reason. They slam the door in the face of the Christians. We got to go back in our minds to a time when there weren't Christian churches around. There are no Christian churches built at this time. You understand that? There's no buildings. They're not going to a building. They have nowhere to go. They've, a lot of them are Jewish. They kind of spread out from the Jewish area. A lot of the leadership is Jewish. And so their main area that they grew up contacting God, communicating with God, learning about God was always at the synagogue. Well, now all of a sudden the Orthodox Jews get in a debate with them. What are you doing? Well, I'm here because Jesus, the Messiah has come. No, he hasn't. You know, really he has. No, he hasn't. We run the synagogue. We don't think he's come yet. No, you cannot continue to teach that here. You're done. Go away. And they slammed the door shut to the Christians and they were excluded from their area of worship. Jesus said, hi, I'm the guy with the keys and I just opened the door and no one can slam it on you. I've put a a wide open door for you. I don't care who has tried to shut doors on you. I'm the one that dictates what doors are opened. You're clear with me. We're good. Does that make sense? All right, we move forward. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you've kept my word and have not denied my name. Have you noticed that it's interesting that God is near those that are weak? Have you noticed that? It's a constant theme in scripture. Why is that? Why is it that God gets really near you when you're in trouble or in pain? You go, well, that's just a nice thing to do. Well, that's true, but it's also a nice thing to do even when people are happy, right? To get near them. And indeed, God is infinitely near us, but I'm talking about when you can feel him, right? When you go, wow, I was going through that really brutal time in my life. I look back. God was so near me. You know, you say that kind of thing. Um, even right now, we are now losing homes and jobs and the recession is brutal and we have all these problems. And for some of us, we've never been closer to the Lord in our whole lives. I've had a lot of friends lose jobs and they are absolutely closer to the Lord and feel more connected with the Lord than ever before. Why is that? Well, what's interesting is two things about how the Messiah would say. He said, when I show up, I'm going to help the oppressed and I will meet the needs of the hurting. The Messiah promised, I will come in and defend you and I will come in and comfort you. Those are promises of the Messiah. So Jesus is the fulfillment of that. He said, I know you have little strength and when you are weak, I'm right there with you. I am there to be with you in your difficult times. That's an encouragement. What's fascinating is I believe that many times the reason why he's closest to us when we are down and out is that's the only time we will sit still to let him hang with us. The minute things, things get going good, we hop up and move away. And so he's still sitting on the couch going, so I guess our time's over then, huh? It's the only time you'll slow down. It's the only time that you open up your head and start praying and start going, Lord, I'm in danger here. I'm in trouble. Everything is horrible. And he's like, okay, well, I've been here the whole time. Thank you very much for acknowledging my existence. Well, let's hang out together. Then all of a sudden everything starts going fantastic. We walk away. It was the same exact thing with Israel in the Old Testament. We're no different, right? But he still is there near like a good father would be 
when someone is crying. Had a gal talk to me after the service last night and she said, everything you were talking about is me right now. She said, I broke my foot and I felt the other day when I was in worship like God was holding me in his arms because everything has fallen apart in my life. And he held me and I felt like I almost had to get knocked down to slow down to feel his embrace. And he was there with me. That's the Jesus that we love. That's the Jesus that we serve. He said, I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. The way the grammar is written in Greek suggests that he's referring to a specific time they went through a tough period. He said, now he moves into defender mode. Remember he was in, I will help you and be nice to you. Now he's becoming, I'm your defender dad and I'm going to run into somebody messing with you. I'll mess with them. He said, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. That's pretty tough language. That's Jesus getting mad. He said, what did the Jews do you? What did they do to you? Did they shut you down? Did they close the door in your face? Did they shut down my house of worship? Is that what happened? I'm the Messiah. They need to keep that door wide open. They need to know that you are right. I'm the Messiah. Your love for me is real. Your love for me is true. And your love for me is accurate. I will make them understand. I will make them realize they cannot just kick you out and make you do whatever they want you to do. They are not in charge. I am in charge. Now, why would he call them a synagogue of Satan? That's a little bit brutal, don't you think? You're like, really? Did you just call Jews the synagogue of Satan? Well, the synagogue obviously is referring to the Jewish part of it. But why is he throwing the Satan line? You go, man, he must hate them. Hold on a second. When Peter, one of Jesus's closest friends, got in the way of the ministry, what did he say? Get behind me. Satan. It doesn't automatically imply that he hates anybody. He said, stop operating on Satan's team. When the Jews were hostile to Jesus in John chapter 8, and they were attacking him and saying, well, we're Jews, who do you think you are? He said, you are of your father, the devil. Do you remember that? Just blasted them. Same exact material is flying out this way. What does Satan mean? Satan means accuser of the brethren. He said, when you terrorize another believer, you are acting like my enemy, Satan. I might as well put his label on your face. Stop being a synagogue of Satan. Oh, but we're Jews. Hold on a second. Paul was very clear in Romans. Not all Israel is true Israel. I don't care whether you were born a Jew or not. You're a Jew in your heart or you're not. And that was a big blast that hit where even through the Old Testament, God kept saying, you need to love me with all your heart, mind, soul and strength. You need to be a Jew on the inside. I don't care just because your mom or dad gave you the genes. I need you to own me in your heart. That's what he's blasting him for. He said, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, which he even mentioned in a letter to Smyrna, the second letter earlier. Who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but they're liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. They have to acknowledge that you're part of the family. And I will make that very clear. Since you have kept my command, T, 
to endure patiently. I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. What's that mean? Ah, here comes everybody's theology, right? Guys, let me give you a, a big fancy term that really doesn't. It's pretty simple. Eschatology. You guys got that? Ology means study of, right? So biology, geology. Are we all clear on that one? Eschatology means study of end times things. So that's going to be a big fancy word you can go use and appear really, really smart with other people. Okay. Um, People's eschatology or their eschatological view will start jumping out right here. He just said he was keeping them from the hour of trial. You know what that means? Pre-tribulation rapture. Oh my gosh, it's the whole left behind thing. That's complete. It's obvious. It's right there. It just said that because you're my church, I'm going to take you out of the trial. You're not going to go through the trial. Nobody's going to be persecuted. Nobody's going to be in this. It's obvious. It's pre-trib. Really? You sure? Not in this passage. Now, we can argue that that may be very accurate later. But don't argue it here. Why? There's a couple problems with it. Number one, why are they getting the honor in the first place? Because they just went through what? Persecution. <laughs> okay, it's kind of circular reasoning to go, God's going to totally keep us away from persecution because he would never allow persecution. But he just allowed persecution. That's why they're getting the honor. So that doesn't work real well. Secondly, we realize that in John 17, 15, when Jesus is praying for believers before he departs, he says, my prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. Jesus has never given a suggestion that the church would be removed from persecution. He actually told them the opposite. In this life, you will have many trials. If you follow me, your life's going to be miserable. I promise you persecution. So first of all, that's a bad way to come up with a concept. Not only that, but when Peter was going through his time, Jesus said, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. He didn't say, but I stopped him. He said, I prayed for you. When you return, meaning, of course, I'm going to let you go through persecution. Of course, I'm going to go let you go through terrible times. I always do that, but I walk with you through it. So whatever you want to make this out to be, I'm not so sure this is your real obvious pre-trib verse. When we get to the later stuff, you may go, Lance, it's clear. Look at this, 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 this. It's obvious pre-trib. Okay, great. You may be dead on accurate. And we're going to talk about all the different views as we move on. But I don't think it's this verse. The other main problem with it, in my opinion, is that. Information is only given to one of how many churches? Seven. So they're the only ones that are going to get out of the tribulation and all the other churches are going to go through it just because they did something good. Come on. It doesn't fit the context here. So we have to argue it later. What does it mean? We don't know what it means. It's an honor of saying you guys have really, really fought hard. I'm going to give you some rest. That's all it means. It means well done. I'm going to shield you for a time. We move on to the next portion. He said, I am coming soon. Jesus actually said that a lot, but to every other church in the letters, it was a negative thing. Do you remember? I'm coming soon. And if you don't pay attention, I'm going to come like what? A thief 
Do you remember that? Or I'm coming soon. And they were supposed to be nervous about that because he was coming with judgment. Now here it's a positive thing. I'm coming soon. and You're supposed to be happy about that. So which is it? Are we supposed to be happy about his return or scared of his return? Depends on what you're doing. Right? The whole book of Revelation is wrapped up in your concept of what's your relationship to Jesus. If Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior, it's a book of encouragement. Hey, I'm coming. Don't worry about it. I'm going to shut all this stuff down. Everybody's not going to get a chance to beat you up for the rest of your life. I'm going to come in, put an end to it, and I'll take you home. That's revelation for Christians. But if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, it's a scary book. Behold, I'm coming soon. You've got a limited amount of time. Are we ready to go? Because this is not going to go well for you. It really depends on your heart whether it's a positive or a negative message. For Philadelphia, who was right in line with what Jesus wanted, it was the best news in the world. Is it good news to you? I am coming soon, he said. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. That is not about salvation. This is a little wreath crown that they would give to the victors of the games. The little like uh, Panionian games or what we think of as like the Olympics. They would do races and they'd get a little wreath crown. That meant you were victorious in an effort and it was a reward. He said, don't let anybody step in and take your rewards. Don't let anyone take away what you've earned. Don't let anyone take away your joy and your blessing. Hang on. Verse 12. He who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. What's that mean? Ah, that's weird. We got three options, right? Of course we always have options. Here's the, here's the three options. In the New Testament, the, the term pillars is used of Peter, James, and John about being pillars of the church. You guys have heard that before, that phrase? It means that you're the solid, steady ones that help support the ministry around here. You're the big dogs, the solid ones. That's all that it means. Is that what it means? He said, if you stick with me, you'll be the solid ones on which I'm going to continue to build my church. Or, number two, reference to the pagan worship in the temples in the area, because in that ancient day, in that part of the world, when a public servant would do well or a priest would have a good run for his job, they would inscribe his name on a pillar in the temples. And he said, I'll write your name. You can be a pillar. Sometimes if they were a big deal, they would sculpt the pillar to look like the person. So they become a literal pillar in image holding up the temple. Is that what it's a reference to? That's a pretty good one. Or number three, in the Old Testament, in the temple in Jerusalem, two pillars are named. Do you remember that? Jachin and Boaz were their names. The two massive pillars in the front of the temple had names. Is that what he's referring to? Was he shooting Old Testament and reminding them, you know what, you guys, it doesn't matter. Why? Because the meaning is always the same. I want to bless you and allow you to be a part of what I'm doing in the kingdom of God. And you guys are going to be heralded out as being great. That's all it was. Nothing more than that. He said, him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God saying, you see all these pillars around you. I'm going to make you one of those in my temple. Never again will he leave it. Why is that good news? 
What happens when you live in an earthquake area? You spend all your time leaving the city, always mobile, going in, going out, going in, going out. Now what's the encouragement? Hey, Philadelphians, when you're in my temple, we never have to go home anywhere else but right here. We're safe. We're secure. You don't have to run away. There is no danger here. You're on my turf. And there is peace. That's all he meant. You will never have to leave it out of fear. He said, I will write on him three things. Do you guys see these listed out here? I will write on him three things. Let me stop and make a side note. In Revelation, the book, there's a lot of writing on people. You just got to get used to it. It is the most tattoo-driven book out of the whole Bible. They are everywhere. Jesus has King of Kings and Lord of Lords written on his thigh. This has something written on their forehead. So-and-so has written something on their hands and written this and written that. And I got it written on a new stone and written on this. There's a lot of writing on people, right? So he said, I'm going to write three things. I'm going to do three things. I will write on him the name of my God. First thing, what is he referring to? In the Old Testament, Aaron, the high priest of Israel, had a literal golden plate on his forehead that said, Holy to Yahweh. So it would dangle there and hang there as he's doing his ministry as a reminder. The forehead is always the idea of being at the forefront of their mind, in their memory. That's what it meant. So he had a literal golden plate to remind him Holy to God. That's who the high priest is before God. Okay? So right there, he's saying, I will write on your forehead or I will write the name of my God. I will also write the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down from heaven from my God. Huh. I'm going to write the name of my city. You go, I thought it was called Jerusalem. What do you mean? You're gonna, is that what you're going to do? You're going to write Jerusalem on them? What are you going to do? This has special meaning to the Philadelphians. First of all, let's establish what the new Jerusalem is. Have you read the end of Revelation, how things wrap up, where it says, and there was a new heavens and a new earth, and down came this holy city called the new Jerusalem. Do you remember that? And then he starts measuring it and talking about how cool it is, stuff like that. All right, we'll study that together. But what does he mean? I'll give you the new name of my city. The Philadelphians thought that was pretty cool. Why? Remember I told you that an earthquake hit him in A.D. 17, and Caesar Tiberius gave him a bunch of money to rebuild. Guess what they did when they got that money? They changed the name of their city. They changed it from Philadelphia to Neo Caesarea, which means the new Caesar city. Then, 90 years later, they got help from a different emperor, a different guy. And you know what? They changed the name of the city again to Flavia because Flavius was the family name of the leader at that time. So they would change the name of their city. And he said, you know what? I'll write the name of my new city on you. And they went, oh, I totally get it. Then he has one more thing to write. He said, and I will also write on him my new name. What does he mean? You will know me personally in my glorified state and I'll put my name on you in your forehead. You will know me personally. He who has an ear, let him hear what the spirit says to the churches. Is this your letter? The one of the, yeah, you did awesome. Well done. Is this your letter? I would hope that someday I receive a letter like that from Jesus. I would hope that this is the letter for Bridgeway. I don't know that. 
But he was constantly saying, you guys are doing so great. You don't have a lot, but that doesn't matter. You guys are rock stars in my world. You guys get a little gold star by your name. You did fantastic, kids. And I want to bless you. I want to give you all kinds of wonderful praise. Good job and well done. Is that what you need to hear today? Maybe you've been struggling so hard under the weight and you're trying not to cave to the temptation or you're trying to hang in there. You're trying to work on your marriage. You're struggling and struggling to do the right thing. And maybe this is a time for Jesus to whisper to you and go, man, I'm so proud of you. You're doing such a great job. Jesus sees that stuff. It's not all bad news. There's a lot of good news. And you just received a whole dose of it. I hope you're encouraged today. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for today. And Lord, thank you for writing these letters to where we can read. Even though it's their mail, there are certain of us, Lord, today, maybe, that you just want to say, you know what, if I was going to write you a letter, it'd be that one. Jesus, please, through the power of your Holy Spirit, encourage us today. In a difficult time, let us know what we are doing well. Give us the excitement and the shot of adrenaline to keep going in the right things, not to cave, to know that we are all right, that you would put something in our encouragement file. And I just ask, Lord, that in some way as you reveal yourself, that you would give us the strength to please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.